The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. It was opening time on a Wednesday morning. A small group of employees stood around at the National Bank of Canton, waiting for Donna Tompkins, assistant to the trust officer, David Haynes, to arrive for work. In addition to Donna's absence, also noted missing, was the night audit, bags of cash from a deposit pickup at the Chestnut Street ATM. In the banking business, this was enough to sound alarms, as those alarms expressed in the form of gossip, as the clock tensely ticked away. The minute hand rounded its way nearer to 9 a.m. To say that people were growing concerned would be an understatement. Thoughts turned to stories of the likes heard on TV. Had Donna been robbed of the cash? Kidnapped? Held for ransom? Or was it possible Donna had taken the money and run, split town, made a fast getaway before the bank even opened for the day? Restrained voices muddled in a huddle between the daily dance of banking chores. After years of working together, employees like family, all aware the past few months had been tough on Donna. Everyone was mindful that Donna had been going through a lengthy and grueling divorce. Maybe she got fed up after all. Voices no longer entirely restrained. Perhaps she saw an opportunity she could not resist, grabbed the prize, and split. After all, rumors had been swirling. Financial problems? Estranged husband not paying his share of support and plotting away her share of the estate. In fact, Donna had told Hazel Brown her side of the story. The situation between her and John 
He had not only been holding back support from their daughter, Justine, but he had threatened to take back all of her Christmas presents if she did not give him a quick kiss on the cheek as he stood on the porch, not allowed to cross the threshold. Donna brought in that piece of wooden door John had broken in a fit of rage when she finally told him she was leaving him. Hazel walked away from that conversation wondering, was Donna in danger? Knowing downright that she was certainly living in fear. Not only had Donna been dealing with marital troubles, but her mother had recently died of cancer. However, she had never let any personal problems affect her work until seemingly this very day. People were confused, as things seemed to be improving for Donna. She had just finished a week-long religious retreat, followed by a trip back east for a family vacation, Christmas, and she returned with her spirits uplifted. Not only was Donna re-embracing her faith, Yes, the bank employees were her family, but everyone knew Donna didn't belong. She was an outsider, as hard as she had tried to fit in. You see, in the small Midwestern Protestant town, Donna Tompkins was still Donna Amicucci, certainly at heart. An Italian Catholic girl, she'd been born far away from the big skies and endless rows of corn that spread wide across Fulton County. A foreign land known to most outsiders as flyover country. An East Coast snob, John often called her. Donna had grown up in a close-knit family, and though she had boasted to them of her quaint new home in Canton, her new community, her friends at the bank, she never missed a chance to express how much she missed her sisters through brothers back east. Though her father seized his own opportunities to express his frustration with Donna's failed marriage, his words aching in her heart, a word even rolled off a lip or two in back offices that morning. Suicide. But David Haynes, Hard-working David was busy, too busy to notice that Donna was late for work. After all, she was always loyal, and certainly always on time. For that exact reason, David had allowed Donna and her puppy dog eyes to make that rejuvenating trip back east. Promising, we will handle things while you are gone, despite pushback from a few higher-ups and larger offices which loomed above. David sat in the basement. Behind that extra work still piled up on his desk, Donna had returned from the holidays. A dentist appointment. Donna had even snapped at Max Scott, supervisor and friend, and though she had been quite disrespectful, it was simply shrugged off as nothing more than a simple bad day. We all have them after all. Donna was bright, intelligent, and liked by most employees. But there was no denying that Donna had a rough go of it making friends with some of the older gals. Judgmental, jealous of the long, gorgeous legs many felt she flaunted, 
wearing modern skirts and matching high heels. But at the end of the day, Donna was dependable. And at a bank, that is what matters most. But back to this particular day. Donna had not yet arrived, and co-worker Sheila Wilson could no longer contain her worry and called the Chestnut Street facility. The news she received was relieving yet startling at the same time, as the night deposit had in fact not been picked up. So no, Donna was clearly not a thief. But where on earth was she? Next, a call was made to Justine's daycare, and neither had Donna dropped her off that morning. And as pressure built like a teapot, Sheila ran down the stairs to the trust office, where David Haynes sat behind his stack of work in a meeting with customer Mike Tucker. She told David the news. David, at Sheila's nudging, picked up his phone and gave Donna a call. Donna herself knew she could always call David, even at home, certainly if she was not feeling well, or if Justine was sick. The two were close. One might even say, best of friends. But what others said was hushed. Donna Tompkins was a beautiful woman. There was no doubt about it. Donna had breezed her way through high school back east. Laughing with friends outside of Rainer Memorial Library at Marquette University up in Wisconsin. And indeed, she enjoyed similar ease as assistant to the president at the Community Bank of Canton where she got her first real job post-graduation. She was proud and was on her way to creating a new life in a new community. And Donna had made quite the impression. She was tall, long, wavy, dark hair, and a warm smile spread across her face that matched perfectly her luminous brown eyes that sparkled when she laughed, flashing that million-dollar smile everywhere she went. It was of little wonder David Haynes was captivated at first sight. David, thanks to an Army GI Bill and a tour in NAM, had himself just graduated from college, a law degree from the University of Illinois, a job at a firm in the same small Midwestern town that Donna had just relocated to. And on David's first day on the job, his new employer advised him to open an account at a bank they represented none other than the community bank where Donna worked. In 1984, the year Gandhi was assassinated, the original Apple Macintosh personal computer went on sale with a Super Bowl ad featuring Orwellian-themed 1984 ads. The Summer Olympics, also known as the Games of the 23rd Olympiad, were held in Los Angeles. The first solo transatlantic flight in a helium balloon was successful. Also, the first untethered spacewalk. In that year of 1984, David must have felt untethered himself as he sat knee to knee across from Donna, across from those warm, welcoming eyes that peered back at him as he filled out that checking account application and declared Donna, 10 years his junior, the most beautiful woman in Canton. The two had dinner. David taking Donna out to a dinner club in his hometown of Avon, an even smaller, farming community to the north. David told Donna all about his childhood as a farm boy, his love of sports, hunting, fishing, even admitting that he got his degree and passed the bar late, 
and Donna spoke of her family. The two hit it off, but as friends mostly, both realizing they had little in the way of romantic chemistry. So they remained close friends through their own separate marriages, so much so that it was rumored their spouses grew jealous. As the fiery gossip was fueled by a Puritan breeze, but what was there to fuss over? They were just friends after all, the best of. And therefore, he told Donna, sure, it would not be weird at all if you came and worked with me. As the community bank closed its doors and Donna reached out, on that day, 1993, when the answering machine picked up, the voice on the greeting was slow, almost like a tape that was melting. David yelled out as he exited his office, Where's Donna? Where the hell is Donna? He made his way upstairs to his boss, Max Scott's office. David informed Mr. Scott that Donna had not yet arrived, as Mr. Scott also was too busy to take notice. David mentioned that he might go to her house and check on her. And Mr. Scott asked, do you want me to come along? But David said he could handle it alone. I can handle it, he said, grabbing his coat. And he flew out the door for his mustard yellow pickup truck, which sat in the parking lot out back. He drove the six blocks and arrived from the north, taking a left into the slick driveway. Just as Cindy Nouse, who had just finished cleaning Polly Newcomb's apartment, loaded her hatchback with cleaning supplies. As Cindy drove off, making her way to Kroger's to do some grocery shopping, David saw Donna's car in the garage and Justine's car seat in the back. This panicked David, and he ran through the snow for her door, which faced the south, a good-sized yard of trees and shrubs, bordered by railroad tracks. David knocked loudly, and although no one answered, he did not see nor hear anything unusual. After getting no response at Donna's door, he walked around to the west side of the house, to Pauline's door. Pauline was writing out checks when the doorbell rang. Cindy had left only a few minutes prior, so Pauline believed she may have forgotten something. When answering the door, she was bewildered by David's wide, spooked eyes, asking her if she had seen Donna that morning. She was confused. David seemed overly concerned. Donna was always gone by 8 o'clock each morning. And when David asked her if she had a key to Donna's apartment, she grew even more bewildered. She told him she had a vase full of spare keys and dumped them out in his hand. The frustration was growing in his tone as he asked if he could use her phone. He dialed Hazel Brown back at the bank with an update. He told Hazel that he was considering calling the police, and she agreed that yes, he should. And just as Hazel hung up, a strange girl walked into the bank and said that she needed to get a hold of Donna, and the girl left as quickly as she had arrived. David asked Pauline for a phone book and flipped chaotically through the pages for the number to the police department. The time, 9.31 a.m. Voice 1. Police department, may I help you? Voice 2. Yes, this is David Haynes from the National Bank. Voice 1. Uh-huh. 
Voice two. My secretary hasn't come to work. I am over at her house. Her car is here, but no one answered the door. I really feel that you should send someone over, and you should get the door open. I don't have a key to get in there. I really think we need to. Wait, Donna? David suddenly heard a knocking sound coming from the other side of the wall, between Pauline and Donna's apartment. Something that sounded like a cane tapping. And Pauline suddenly said, Something has happened. David covered the receiver and told her it may be a gas leak and to quickly exit the apartment. So Pauline went to the porch, but no further. After all, it was still cold and windy as hell. Get someone over here. It's 365 South 1st, and we will need someone to get that door open. Voice 1. 365 South 1st. Voice 2. Yes. Voice 1. Okay, I will send an officer down. Voice 2. All right, bye. David exited Pauline's apartment and ran back to Donna's to look into the windows, shouting her name. Donna. 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 Since the police had yet to arrive, David decided to take action. He yanked an air conditioner unit from a kitchen window just to the right of the door. Its weight in David's outstretched arms pulled him over just as a fireball shot out over his head. Heavy smoke rolled out in two wide columns of white and brown, rising in thick plumes until the swift breeze whisked the heavy smoke away. David ripped a small piece of metal from the screen in the window and used it to break out the glass in the door. Reaching in with his gloved hand, he couldn't feel the lock. So he removed a winter glove and reached in again and unlocked the deadbolt. The hot brass melting the prints from the tip of his middle finger. Scrambling, David opened the door and took two impossible steps inside before dropping to his knees. A sudden crackling amplified, and beyond the thick, heavy gray, black smoke, David could see red flames, embers, and a bright glow ahead. A mesmerizing, brilliant deep red dome, just as another fireball came right at him singeing his hair and eyebrows, sending him stumbling backward out of the house. The gas dial whined and spun out of control, and the old house by the tracks, suddenly engulfed by a rapid, intense blaze, bellowed and moaned. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>